Good morning, church family. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open those to the book of 1 Corinthians. That's where we will read together today. Uh, today is our sixth and final week in a series that we're calling Piecing Together the Bible, where we have essentially surveyed the entire Scripture, understanding how God has woven together the redemptive story of mankind. And today we cover the last 22 books in the New Testament. So the 22 letters that we see in the New Testament from Romans to Revelation. And if you could pick a word, just one word, if you could pick one, pluck one word out of the sky to describe the Christian life, what one word would you choose? Grace. I chose one that is found eight times in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That is where we are. Verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and it is not jealous. Love does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not act unbecoming. It does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in righteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, verse 13. But now faith, hope, and love abide in these three. But the greatest of these is love. Amen. When you open your Bible to the book of Galatians, what's going on? When you read Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans for a hope and a future. We've all ripped that one right out of context, okay? Because is he talking to us, or is he talking to someone else? Is Habakkuk 1.5 written to you? Is it a verse of judgment or blessing? I'll read it. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your day you would not believe if I, if you were told. That's a great uh, retreat t-shirt, too bad it's pronouncing uh, death and destruction. But why is Paul writing about elders and deacons in the book of Titus? What's going on with the guy in 1 Corinthians and his stepmother? These are all questions that I hope are answered by the series that we have done. This series is purpose to help us understand or really be able to interpret the Bible correctly. Because becoming spiritually mature without knowing and applying the Bible is like me becoming an NBA basketball player. It's never going to happen. We like to look at the Scripture itself and we assume that we just kind of take verses right out of their context and not really understand why God has placed them there and in what context He is discussing them. So this series, the last six weeks, have been designed to really help you become a biblical follower of Christ, to think through the Scripture systematically as the totality of the narrative of the Bible. 
Now, this is the final week in our series. Now, for some of us, that's probably a relief, and some of you may want to cry. But by the end of this six-week series, I'm hoping that you have essentially three things. You have a chronological timeline of the Old Testament. If you kept your notes, you have a brief understanding of each book of the Bible. And number three, that you have an understanding of the entire history of the Bible. Now, I'm going to encourage you to pick up the notes. There's some back there by the bathrooms and over here in the foyer. If you look on the front, you have all 20 events that summarize the narrative story of the Bible. Then on the back, you have... Um, Nausea City right here. This is Way TMI. I typed that all up for you all just to put you to bed tonight very well. Um, but I would encourage you to pick it up because this really under- helps you understand each letter of the New Testament in which we will discuss today. But before we get too far in, let us kind of remember where we are in the series. Like I said, this is our sixth and final week in the series called Piecing Together the Bible. But I want to pause, take a time out for just a second. Now, I know the the next two minutes of my sermon, I do this every single week. I know the two minutes of review every week is probably not my most entertaining or engaging portion of my message. So why do we actually review where we've been every single Sunday morning? It's because we can't remember, as I say often, we can't remember what we had for dinner last night. Much less what happened 168 hours ago. And my father-in-law, he likes to repeat this one phrase to me over and over again. My father-in-law says is that repetition is theological glue. It helps us remember the scripture and the redemptive plan of God. And speaking of my father-in-law, he is in Glacier National Park right now. And I only despise him a little bit. Um, But we have spent three weeks in the Old Testament, one week in the 400 years of science, which is the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then we spent two weeks unpacking the New Testament. Last week, if you were here, I'm not going to review everything because I don't want to put you fully to sleep today. But if you were here last week, we really looked at Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. And that's all the people in the room say, duh. But what we did is we kind of proved that one point or one statement, that we saw Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because of the Old Testament prophecy that he fulfills, that he is born in a town called Bethlehem in Luke chapter 2, which is predicted in Micah 5.2. We see his death predicted in Isaiah 53. We see the virgin birth in Isaiah 7.14. We see his clothes being cast lots by the soldiers in Psalm 22 verse 18. And we walk away from that. We see the We saw a portion of the over 500 prophecies that Jesus fulfills. And there are only two conclusions that we come to when we actually look at the evidence that Jesus in the Old Testament is prophesied. Number one, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. And number two, that the Bible is truth. Because how else could you explain a prophecy that is predicted 500 years before and is fulfilled perfectly in the New Testament? But before we get in too deep, I'm going to just kind of briefly scan over the note sheet real quick. Events 15 through 20 on your notes. I'm not going to really dive into this, but just to kind of help us understand the totality of the picture of Scripture. Event number 15 is the prediction of Jesus, then the birth of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and then the impact of Jesus, which is where we will see today. We see in the book of Acts, the helper arrives in chapter 1 and 2. The church goes out. Acts 1 through 28, and then the church is instructed in the letters that we see from Romans to Revelation. 
I'm giving you a glimpse what the rest of my message here today is going to be, okay? It's just going to be a little bit more heavy on the teaching side than just on the application and preaching side. But this week, I just, you know, I put my computer down. I sat there in Atlanta Bread Company this week. That's where I was, if you saw me there. And I just took a step back from my computer and I thought about every single letter that is written in the New Testament from Romans all the way to Revelation. One of the two components in every single letter written in the New Testament. There are two pieces that we find in every single letter. Because sometimes we overcomplicate Christianity and sometimes we undercomplicate it. Sometimes we overcomplicate life and sometimes we make it too simple. To illustrate this point, believe it or not, at one, believe it or not, I never played football. I know it's a disservice to humanity because my body is quite large and I would have probably destroyed some high school students back in the day. But believe it or not, at one time I was very scrawny and I had a lot of hair. Some of you remember me in that day. But a lot has changed. Now, football, now that football is back and now that the graven image of Nick Saban is worshipped again, that's a problem, by the way. <laughs> okay, I got an amen. I want you to think about the game of football. How do you actually win a football game? By putting the ball into the end zone. Wrong. It's actually two things, right? By putting the ball into the end zone and by preventing the other team from doing so as well. Winning football is essentially two things. It is both offense and defense. Now, some of you are wondering where I'm going with this. Every epistle, every letter is composed of two different things. When you think of every single letter from Romans, 1 Corinthians, Philemon, Philippians, Jude, 1st and 2nd, 3rd, John, what, it, what does it entail? Think. There are two things to every letter. There's doctrine and there's application. That in every single letter that we will talk about today, there is doctrine and there is application. Let me just emphasize that last piece real quick, friends. That we love the doctrine side, especially at Calvary Bible Church in, in a town full of analytical people, okay? Which is a wonderful thing. I'm a son of an engineer, so I am analytical myself. But we love to stress the doctrine side, but there is also an application side to the Scripture itself. The Bible is not just about knowing something. It is also about doing something. It is both knowing and doing. Understanding the truth and practicing the truth. Doctrine is gnomic and application is specific. So this is what I want to do this week. In your note sheet, there is a lot of information about purpose, and some of the outlines are included. And kind of, But I really don't want to just read the back of this note sheet to you, because that would completely put you to sleep today. So what I would rather do is go over each letter of the New Testament very quickly and discuss the doctrine that is incorporated in that, in that book and also the application that we see. So to give you my plan, we're going to briefly talk about each New Testament letter, both the doctrine and application, and then at the end, we will find an application that is central to the Christian life. If you think about the, first I'm going to just start with the 
letters written by Paul. Pauline epistles is kind of the official name for it. And there are four groups to Paul's epistles or Paul's letter. There is Paul's salvation letters, there is Paul's prison letters, there is Paul's in-time letters, and then the pastoral letters. Group number one are the salvation letters. That includes Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians. If you haven't read the book of Romans recently, uh, do it. The book of Romans is perhaps one of the most wonderful books in the entire Bible. If you were here, we spent over a year walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Romans. And if you remember, I'm going to ask you a question. You don't have to answer if you're afraid that you might fail the quiz. But what is the central theme or a central theme in the book of Romans? It is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We see that the the book of Romans is broken down into four main pieces. You have chapters 1 and 4. Chapter 1 really describes the depravity of mankind. Chapter 2 is our struggle with favoritism. And chapter 3 and 4, that that we want to justify ourselves by means that we can do, that we can earn heaven. The Jews in the first century are trying to justify themselves by circumcision. So really, if you put it all together, chapters 1 through 4 is discussing the need, need for the gospel. Chapters 5 through 8 is the transforming work of the gospel. Chapters 9 through 11 is God's sovereignty and plan for the gospel. And chapter 12 through 16 is the practical outworking of the gospel and the transition of Romans from the theoretical and the doc- doctrinal side to the practical side is found in Romans chapter 11 and 12. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. This is at the end of chapter 11. He summarizes the whole book of Romans to that, this point in, this, in these four verses. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or became His counselor? Who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. And then in one word, Paul transitions from the doctrinal side to the practical side. I urge you, therefore, based on what I just said, therefore, what do I want you to do? Brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. That is the book of Romans in a nutshell. The doctrine in chapters 1 through 11, and the practical outworking in chapters 12 and on. The book of 1 Corinthians is in many ways, the, the opposite of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is like super duper heavy in doctrine and is a little bit lighter in the application, whereas the book of 1 Corinthians is much heavier on the application, a little bit lighter on doctrine. At the core of the first book of 1 Corinthians, you see the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of ecclesiology. What is that? Ecclesia is the... Greek word for church, the called out ones, ecclesiology is the study of the church, the study, the doctrine of the church. So we see the doctrine of the church, we also see sanctification. But the book of 1 Corinthians is uh, very personal, very practical to that time period in the first century. The application we see is in chapter 11, to observe communion appropriately. We see the use of spiritual gifts in chapter 12, the caution of prudence in chapter 13, 
excuse me, chapter 14, the exercise of love, and chapter 13, the evidence for the resurrection, and chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, then the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is stated by many scholars to be the most personal letter of Paul. You see the thorn in the flesh, you also see his trials that he encounters in chapter 11. But at the heart of 2 Corinthians, you see the doctrine of Christ. But a little bit more specifically, especially in chapter 5, you see the imputation of sin upon Christ. Verse 17 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Can I get an amen to that one? Let me just read that again, just in case you haven't read that in a while. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, although God we're entreating through us, we beg you to, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him and knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The last of the salvation group that Paul wrote, I mean, obviously this is a little bit limiting because the salvation is explained in the book of Ephesians, I know that. But the book of Galatians is the last book in the salvation letters of Paul. If you, if you were to actually look in your Bible, you would see in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, you see the churches in Galatia. That word ecclesia is plural, which tells you what? That this letter of Galatians is not just written to one particular church in one particular city, which is most letters, but it's written to churches in the region of Galatia, which is a modern-day Turkey. The book of Galatians is described by scholars as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. The freedom and liberty found in the book of Galatians was in no small part a driving force for Martin Luther to pursue freedom from Christian or from Catholic restraint. The doctrine at the heart of the book of Galatians is really salvation, particularly justification by means of grace through faith in Christ alone. And then the application happens in chapter 5. It really is peppered throughout. But if you notice in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, and I'm going to read this. I know I'm reading a lot of scripture, and I know I'm bouncing all around, and I know I'm probably over a lot of people's heads this morning, and I apologize for that. But if you, there's a couple of verses that I hope you catch. This is one of them. Galatians 5, 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love. That is one word in the original language. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15. This one gets a little up close and personal. But... If you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So the opposite, but contrast in verse 15, the opposite of love is taking nibbles at one another, criticizing one another, finding gossip. We've all been victims of that. Amen? Verse 16, but contrast 
I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Group one is the salvation letters, Romans through Galatians. Group number two is the prison group, the prison letters, Ephesians through Philemon. The book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written while Paul was in prison. Now, most of us know in this room why Paul ended up in prison. So if you do not know, I'm just going to answer that. Paul was thrown in prison because he stole a TV at a Best Buy. No. He he was in prison because of his faith. If you remember the book of Acts... There are three missionary journeys. His first journey is Acts 13 and 14. Then the second one is Acts 15 through 18. The third one is in Acts 18 through 21. And then what happens when Paul gets back from his third missionary journey? He has been tried before three different people. Festus, Felix, and then Herod Antipas. And then what happens? Paul appeals to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. Then he goes from Israel to Rome. He spends two years in prison under house arrest, awaiting his trial before the Roman emperor, and there he sits. And he writes the four prison letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. But then what happens after the two years is really debated by scholars. Some scholars believe that he dies in prison there, but some people, he, some scholars believe he escapes, he goes to Spain, and he writes First and Second Timothy and Titus. I probably would affirm that piece. The book of Ephesians, as Dustin has said recently to us all, the book of Ephesians is the Reader Digest version of the book of Romans. It is a condensed version. Paul takes the doctrine in the 16 chapters of Romans and condenses it down to six chapters in Ephesians. But Paul, in his favor to us, makes it once again very simple to break where the doctrine and application come in. Chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians is doctrine, and then chapters 4 through 6 is the application. The doctrine side, we see the doctrine of predestination, sovereignty, the depravity of man, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not by works as any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He has prepared before Him so that we would walk in them. But then, the, the, the last half of the book of Ephesians is application. Be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Put on the full armor of God. Are some of the application mentioned in Ephesians. The book of Philippians. We spent probably ten years going through the book of Philippians. I don't know how long it was. But we here at Calvary Bible just walked verse by verse through that book. And if you could describe the book of Philippians in a word, what would you use? It is Cairo. It is the Greek word joy or delight. That if you think about where Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he is in prison. And I said back then that he is a turkey on Thanksgiving Eve. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die after two years. So he's sitting there telling the church in Philippi to delight, to be joyful in the Lord. And in chapter 4 it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Can I just speak? We try to find joy in our circumstances. Instead of finding joy in Christ and in Him alone, we try to find joy in buying more stuff or in a tingly feeling and trying to find the next rush. 
But truly the only joy and the only endless source of happiness that we have in this life is in Christ alone. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The book of Colossians is... That and the book of Philemon, these two books are probably one of the most neglected books in the entire New Testament because we really love Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians is like, is that even in there? Um, the book of Colossians centers on the doctrine of the person and character of Christ. The Colossians chapter 1 is, as I read last week, is the most beautiful, deep, and rich treatise of Christology. It is awesome. But then the application throughout the book of Colossians, is to put on the new self. This is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore... He's speaking to Christians. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil deeds, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Book of Philemon is a very short and very personal book. What is it about? Philemon is a slaveholder, and his slave ran away named Onesimus. Onesimus finds Paul in prison, and then Paul gives essentially the letter to Onesimus, taking the letter to his former master Philemon, and Onesimus plans to go back underneath the submission of Philemon. And Paul basically says to Philemon, just, just, just take it easy on the guy. Kind of the doctrine and application is the forgiveness and the, self, and the self-sacrifice of the Christian faith. How do we actually all get along? The, the part number three is the eschatology letter. Now, what does that word eschatology mean? The word eschatology is where we is really two words. Eschatos, which means last, and ology means the study of. So, eschatology is the study of the end times. The book of First and Second Thessalonians is the group that's underneath this because it really describes in so many words what happens at the end, including the book of Revelation. In First Thessalonians, you see the mention of the rapture. In Second Thessalonians, you see the mention of the man of lawlessness. And what is always the application whenever you talk about the end times? It is to encourage one another with these words because the Lord's return is near. I would imagine each day that you live, you look more and more forward to the coming of Christ. Can I get an amen? That the world is going, rescue us. And then part number four is the pastoral letters. That is first and second Timothy and Titus. First and second Timothy were written by Paul to a young man named Timothy. He was the pastor in the church of Ephesus. He's also one of Paul's closest associates. And you really see in the book of First and Second Timothy, in the book of Titus, you see uh, ecclesiology, which is, I've already said is the study of the church. You see the mention of the qualifications of elders and deacons. You see the priority of the church to preach the word. And to, in Second Timothy chapter two, verse two, it says this: "You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus." And this is what we should do all times as the church. The things which you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also for generations. 
That is the Pauline epistles. And if I'm over your head, I'll catch up to you in just a minute. But then you have nine other books, nine other letters in the New Testament. We will begin with the book of Hebrews. Now the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews, to the Hebrew people. And there is a lot of debate. I'll just tell you, my scholars, there's a lot of debate on who actually pens and authors the book of Hebrews. There are dissertations that are written. There are debates at seminary, which I participated in, over who actually penned the book of Hebrews. And guess what? If we don't know 2,000 years later, then we won't know until heaven. So guess what? It's probably not worth arguing about. So moving on. The book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrew people, and its doctrine is the doctrine and the person of Christ. What is the central theme? That Christ is superior to the prophets, to the angels, to Moses, and the Old Testament priesthood. And the application is to stimulate one another toward love and good deeds, to run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, to not forsake the assembly as is the habit of some. The book of James. There are two books in the New Testament written by Jesus' own brothers. It is the book of James and the book of Jude. Let me pause right there for just a second. When you grew up in this world, who really knew you best? Well, you like to hide things from your parents, okay? I'm already starting to see my children exercising the depravity of mankind because they don't really want to tell me something to get in trouble. So who really knows you best in your childhood? It is probably your brother or sister. Where am I going with that? The fact that Jesus' own brothers affirm the person and character of Christ tells you something. It tells you that the message of the gospel and the sacrifice to all of mankind is legitimate. Now, I, I would not envy his brothers for living in the same household, because I would imagine Mary would always say to James and Jude, can't you guys just be like your brother Jesus? That would be horrible, but the fact that his own brothers affirm the message of the gospel tells me that he is true. Otherwise, they wouldn't have recorded it. The book of James, if you have not read it in a while, is beautiful. It is one of the most lovely and convicting and powerful letters in the entire New Testament. If you feel great about your life and you feel like you're a really spiritual mature, then go read the book of James. It'll knock you down about three notches. The book of James is the first book I ever taught. It's the first book I memorized. It's the first book I ever preached cover to cover. Uh, James, there, there's a lot of doctrine in the book of James, but it's more like salting your food, and the main course of James is the application of truth. Some of the doctrine we see in the book of James is the relationship between faith and work, sanctification of the tongue, our struggle with sin. We see demons mentioned, prayer mentioned. And I say in my notes up here that application for the book of James is every verse. Every verse is convicting and is applicable. The book of Jude is the second book in the New Testament written by Jesus' own brothers. If you think about it, I'm just going to, this is a rabbit trail on FYI, just impress your friends a little bit later with this piece of information. The book of, Jesus' own brother was named James, that is really the Hebrew word for Jacob. And then you have the 
brother Jude, which is Judas, and then you have Jesus' own name, which is actually Joshua in the Hebrew. So think about the commonality of those three names. The book of Jude is written, like I said, by Judas, Jesus' own brother. It describes the doctrine of angels, the importance of looking out for false teachers. And if you read the book of Jude, you will instantly find out that it's a little bit strange in some ways, but it's still inspired of God. This is in Jude chapter 1, verse 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Verse 19 of Jude. These are the ones who cause divisions, world, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your own most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. If you know your New Testament too, you see in the book of Philippians, you also see in the book of Second Peter, in the book of Jude, you see this sub-theme throughout all of the letters of being aware of false teachers. Why would he mention that? What does it tell you that letter after letter, person after person, tells us as Christians to be aware of false teachers and false preachings? What does that tell you? It tells you that truth matters. That knowing the Bible actually does Matter And why does it matter? So that not only can you grow in your faith, not only so that you can apply correctly the truth, but the, so that you can spot falsehood. Friends, listen to me. The people in this world, many Christians, are falling away from the faith because they are following somebody that is charismatic, or that tickles ears, or that creates goosebumps and good feelings. But the reason why... Bible is in our middle name. The reason why we preach the Bible and we've gone through the Gospel of John, which we will turn to in here in a few weeks, the reason why we are doing a series that is probably all over your head. It is probably over mine. The reason this is TMI is because truth matters. Knowing what is true and knowing what is false is essential for the body of Christ. That's why we study, and that's why we need to interpret it correctly, and that's why we do this series. First Peter is a wonderful book. If you haven't read it recently, it is just chocked full. You see the doctrine of grace and the sufficiency of God's grace. You see the application of really practical Christian living, our submission to government, advice for marriage, suffering, and grace to others. Second Peter... You see the doctrine of the day of the Lord and judgment. You see the application of it at the end of chapter 3. Really the culmination of the whole book and the application is but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The book of First John, I'm trying to finish through it. The rest of the books really quickly, so I'm going to leave off some of my notes here today. The book of First John is one of the most simple books in lingo, but one of the most difficult books that I have found to teach. 
because it's just so deep and just so rich. Really, it talks about what it means to live a true Christian life. Second John and Third John are the shortest books in the New Testament. Really, talk about encouraging people to be steadfast. And then finally, the book of Revelation. We could spend 15 years in the book of Revelation, and maybe one day I'll be bold enough to do that, and I'll probably be older with a little less hair. By the way, I shaved my head yesterday, and I realized that I am balding more and more. Pretty soon it would just be a golden dome right in front of you. But the purpose of the book of Revelation is to really foretell the seven churches and to foretell the church of their current state and also the future plan of God's judgment to come. The outline of the book of Revelation is found in Revelation 1.4. It says, Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who will to, who is to come. That is the outline of the book of Revelation. And that is a brief understanding of the doctrine and application of each of the 22 New Testament epistles. Allow me to just speak now to the people in the room that live in the 21st century that are probably just now waking up. Think about something with me. What are some common themes throughout the New Testament? Just, just on the doctrinal side of things. What are some themes that we see in the New Testament? We see the themes of superiority of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the depravity and the brokenness and the sinfulness of mankind, the struggle that we have to put on the new self and to take off the old self. We see the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. We see the doctrine of the imminent Christ, return of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit. The application side, to be aware of false teachers, to be joyful in, this, in Christ, to walk by the Spirit, to believe in the Son, to trust in the Father, to function as a member of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and 1 Peter chapter 4, that we each are given spiritual gifts, that we are to exercise accordingly. The importance of unity. But I want you to walk away with one. I want you to walk away with one theme and one thought. Over the last couple of weeks, I have wanted you to walk away with kind of a thematic, uh, ecumenical, so to speak, theme of the whole Bible. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the application of the importance of knowing and applying the text. The last week we talked about is Jesus, Lord of your life. But this week, I want you to walk away with the message of the Bible. There are 66 books in your scripture, and there is one theme. There is one word that could summarize it all. Allow me to ask you the question. I want you to picture your own life. And let's do it a little bit better. I want you to picture your tombstone. We don't really like to think about that, but it is important to do so. It says in... Psalm 90, to teach me to number my days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. It is important to understand that we are mortal. I want you to picture your tombstone. What word could describe your life? What one word at your funeral will your family use to describe you? What one word would you want your preacher to use to describe your life? 
Friends, sometimes we just overcomplicate everything. We overcomplicate the Christian life. But really, the Christian life is actually quite simple. It boils down to one thing. What is the one word that describes the Christian life? That one word answers all of these questions. Just listen to what I'm about to ask you. Listen to me. What is the one characteristic that describes God? 1 John 4.8 What is the one sign of spiritual maturity? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 What is the one way to relate to God? Matthew chapter 22 verse 37 What is the best one way to evangelize? John 13.35 What is the most repeated command in all of the Bible? 1 John 4, 7. What one word answers them all? It is the word love. That summarizes not only the gospel, not only the very character of Christ, but how I relate to Him. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. The lawyer says to Jesus, What is the greatest commandment in all the law? He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. We read it earlier. Love is the one sign of spiritual maturity. Listen to what this says. We like verse 4, but we skip verse 1-3. First uh, Corinthians 13, verses 1-3. If I speak with the tongues of mankind and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and have all knowledge, we seek knowledge... But what does it say? And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all of my possessions, and if I surrender my body so that I may be glorified, but do not have love, it does me no good. Love is the one sign, the best sign of spiritual maturity. Love is the one way to relate to God. Love allows me to forgive. First Peter 4.8 Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Knowledge puffs, but love edifies. Love completes the law. Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are 59 one another's in the, in the scripture itself. And guess which one is the most common? Fifteen of them is three words. Love one another, 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 love one another. The message, the application of the scripture for our lives is, do we really love God and love people? That's the application of the Bible. Think about it. Because of God's love for us, it compels me then to love Him and love others. God's love for us is the redemptive story of mankind going from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 all the way through the last chapter of Revelation that this redemptive story unfolds the love and the plan of God. That's the theme. 
But the application of that theme, the application of that doctrine, is for you and me to then love Him with all of my heart, soul, and mind, every part of my being, my thoughts, my emotions, and my actions, and to then love my neighbor as myself. The question is, do we? Do we? That tombstone that will mark your place in the dirt. What will be said on that? Here lies a rich and miserable man. Here lies the busiest person I ever met. Here lies the guy that caused me all my pain. Friends, I know we are far from perfect. You can go ask my wife about it. If you really want to, check, if you want to check if Byron's perfect, just go ask my wife. Fortunately, she's not here today. Okay, so you can't ask her in the hallway. I know we all struggle to love, but that is the one marker of spiritual maturity. That is the one way to love God. That is the one way to love others. That is the one way to forgive. That is the one way to really evangelize this lost and dying world. The question is, do you? Do we love people? The point of the Bible is God's love for us compels me to love Him and love others. God's love for me compels me to love God and love others. That's it. I'm going to close with a verse that summarizes this all. 1 John 4. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed us how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. And this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to also love one another. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning. Uh, I know today it is a lot... I know it was a lot to digest, and um, Lord, I just I, I, my hope for this passage for the series is that we just understand a little bit more of how you fabric together your words so that we can interpret it correctly and apply it correctly. But Lord, I just pray that our faith would go beyond our head and just something that we need to know more of. But Lord, you say in your scripture that knowledge puffs and love edifies. Lord, I pray that we would be marked by our love for you and our love for others. Lord, for those that are here today that do not know your love, that feel far from you, that do not know you as Savior, Lord, I pray that they would trust in you as their Lord and Savior and believe in you and be saved and be changed. Thank you for this church. I thank you for our devotion to the scripture. And I pray that that would never change. Lord, I just pray in the application of your word that we would go forth as lights to the world and showing your light by our love in a loveless and dark world. Thank you for today. And I lift this all up in Jesus' name. Amen.